John chapter 12 verses 1 to 8 Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Here, this is the word of God. There are a number of famous traders in history, Benedict Arnold or uh, Quisling or Wang Jingfei or Brutus. We could come up with a list of uh, famous traders, but I think the iconic traitor is Judas Iscariot. Probably for a number of reasons, but the very means of betrayal to greet Jesus with a kiss stands out as something that just goes against what we desire to see in people, that, that a kiss is a symbol of devotion and affinity and affection was used by one of the disciples to identify Jesus to those who hated and intended on killing him. The theme of betrayal is something that you could see as part of the, the fiber of Scripture, as the, the Bible opens up with humanity turning from God and then records the unfortunate history of what follows. Uh, betrayal is part of that story. It's not simply that God is uh, an objective lawgiver who gave commands, and because we broke them, he has an obligation to punish us. But God is pictured as a father uh, who loves us, and we are pictured as those who disregarded and betrayed and walked away and then have suffered the consequences of the breaking of that relationship. And so when it comes to Jesus coming to fulfill the scriptures, it's not surprising that there will be various expressions of betrayal, including one of the 12, one of his own disciples, Judas. And that's clearly part of this story even though this story is a, is a bit of an installment on the way to the next chapter, which we will not be looking at. Uh, we're ending at the, uh, with chapter 12. We have three more Sundays in chapter 12. Uh, but it's in chapter 13 that Judas explicitly betrays. But even here in verse 4, uh, there's a sense in which John is giving us a forward-looking implication of what happened. Judas, who speaks in the scene, is the one who is about to betray Jesus. And so whatever was in Judas's mind, we don't know, but certainly there's an awareness that this event is part of the nearing climax of Jesus's ministry. And so the Bible doesn't invite us to be sympathetic to Judas as if we're to feel bad for him, but in our tendency to hate him, to try to distance ourselves and, and resent him to hope that we're not like him, we would actually be wiser to acknowledge that even though none of us are exactly like him because every individual is different, his context is different, but to note some of those things in him that might be like us so that we 
can change from them. And so as we look at this passage today and, and, and think about some of the dynamics of betrayal, of what's happening under the scenes uh, below the surface, because um, things look fine with Judas, but they're not. Um, and things often look fine with us, but they aren't always. And so how can we learn from this passage um, about some of those dynamics that wind up being destructive. And Judas is an interesting example because he wound up not simply being destructive to everyone around him, but ultimately to himself. And so his own life uh, did not turn out well from here on because of how he was making decisions. So what I want to talk about this morning is hidden influences, what happens sometimes underneath the radar that's shaping how we see things and how we act. And then I want to talk about new influences, how Jesus' presence in this story is actually inviting us to, to a different way. So I want to begin with hidden influences. Um, in retrospect, what Judas did in this scene was problematic. But one of the things John, our narrator, keeps signaling as he tells these stories that he presents to us in his gospel, is at the time these things were happening, nobody really understood what was happening. Uh, in a variety of ways, Jesus is constantly misunderstood in his teaching, his actions are misunderstood, and it seems like after he was raised and after he sat down and then explained to his disciples, they started to realize what was happening all along. And this story has a bit of that sense where at the time, People did not suspect Judas. You know, in chapter 13, when Jesus says, one of my own disciples will betray me, they're completely confused. It's not like they're all bumping elbows that they had noticed that Judas was likely a rotten person, but Judas actually seemed like one of them. It is only after he betrayed him that they were able to go back and recognize, yes, yeah, something wasn't right. And so in this story at the time, uh, people would have thought that Judas might have been the one who was speaking properly into the scenario. It's a strange situation what happens. There's a dinner party, and Mary of Bethany, you know, there are numerous Marys in John's Gospel. This is Mary of Bethany. Mary comes into the room and takes this very expensive ointment, pours it on his feet, lets her hair down, and wipes his feet. And the more you know about the, the ancient context, the more you can get a sense of what a strange thing this was. But if you know nothing about the ancient context, Picture the boardroom at your work meeting. Picture uh, being at a restaurant where people are celebrating Mother's Day today. Picture your first birthday party uh, for, for a kid and uh, somebody coming in and doing this. No, no matter what your expectations are, this was strange and strange is uncomfortable for us. In those situations, we find ourselves saying, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. So we sit there silently uncomfortable and often somebody says something. In this case, Judas was the one to say something. He's the one who framed what was going on for us. Uh, so verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. That's what happens. That's the context for Judas's comment. And one of the things that's worth noting is this ointment, when it says it was expensive, it was extremely expensive. We don't know, you know how, to, how to figure it out, but you know, they, they say that it was worth something um, like a, a, a full year's salary, and I try to did, do the math, and I think it was something like 150,000 Dogecoin. I'm not sure exactly uh, you know, how to do the figure, but, but as I read about it, some people gave a number like $30,000. How could somebody own ointment for $30,000? I don't know, but the point is, something so exceedingly valuable that she just pours out on Jesus' feet. 
and then uses her hair to wipe it, which has its own number of, of um, uh, questions that would come up for people watching this. So Judas is the one to speak. In verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, um, who was to betray him. So here's this weird thing. Judas would have been seen as a respectable figure. He was a faithful follower of Jesus, had exposure to Jesus' teachings. He's the one who speaks, and yet what the audience doesn't know, only Jesus knows, is, is, is his heart was already not right. So what was it that wasn't right? And we don't need to necessarily identify one thing, but our passage highlights one thing that seems to be at work in terms of how Judas is operating. In verse 6, um, when he says, hey, this, anoint, this ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor, why is he saying that? John tells us in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, so there, what he sees, because he doesn't love people, he loves money. So he sees this interaction as a missed opportunity. If you're used to skimming off the top so you wouldn't get caught, if something is enormously valuable, if he could get 1% of it that nobody's going to count, he would make off well. So he sees something in this as an opportunity that, that stirs maybe a bit of resentment, maybe a bit of frustration. But the interesting thing is, according to Jesus' teaching, he's right. We should take our possessions and, and use them to benefit the poor. But this is often what we do. We have something in our hearts that's not right. And we keep it buried and hidden so it has influence. And then in order to mask it or to justify it, we come up with the language to make it look like we're okay. And this passage is highlighting that the power of corruption is such that if, if it's there working in you, it will make its way out variously. And so sometimes you'll think you're covering up and you're not. But even if you're able to convince everyone, at some point, if there's something rotten in us, it's going to be corrosive uh, and it will overtake us. And so Judas um, had this greedy desire in him. You know, and he had an opportunity right there to say, uh, Jesus, can I ask a question? Um, you teach us to love the poor. This is a confusing scenario. My first thought, to be honest, was she shouldn't have done that. So Jesus, could you teach us? <laughs> or if he had good sense to say, I'm not going to say anything afterwards. So Jesus, what was that? You told us to sell everything and care for the poor. Why did that happen? But he wasn't there to learn. When he made this statement uh, that would wind up being humiliating to her, which would prove to be dishonoring to Jesus who's allowing this to happen, he makes a statement that makes him sound himself more moral than Jesus. Jesus, you're the one who says to care for the poor? Wow, well, who here really cares for the poor? Isn't it me who's thinking about the poor in this situation? And Jesus, you're just allowing this uh, woman to do this. That's how, that's how we see the scene. But what we don't see is underneath uh, Judas, rather than hating this thing in him and bringing it to light so he can get help for it. Jesus, who has the power to heal and raise the dead, could not Judas have said, can you help me with these struggles that I have? Instead, he kept them hidden from the very one who can help him. And that kept him separated from the one who could help him. And in Judas's case, it kept him permanently separated. And that's what we want to be careful of, that we're not allowing our shame, our anger, or the love of some 
problematic desire in us to continue to have its influence until it destroys us. I read an interesting article, this was quite a while ago, maybe uh, 10 years ago or so, of a writer. The title of his article was an apology to two other authors, because he was a book reviewer, he was a critic. And he, uh, he said he had reviewed their books very harshly, and his honest assessment was, I didn't love your books, but my reviews were terrible because it's not simply that I didn't think they were great, but I, I slammed you in a way that was not because of your writing, but because of what was going on in me. So I'm gonna read you a couple of uh, excerpts from this. He says, as my own rejection letters piled up, it became unbearable to stomach the notion that others, many of whom seemed from their biographies to have sacrificed much less than I had, were being celebrated while I worked in the byways of the literary world. So he's a writer, but he's not supporting his career by his fiction, but by his criticism. So he says, consequently, the reviews I wrote came to bear a stench of bitterness, none more so than when I wrote for The Village Voice in 2008, in which I took on two debut novelists. And he actually goes on to name these individuals that he's apologizing to. But he says, it's true, I did not like their novels, but my dislike was set aflame by jealousy of young men whose profiles were similar to mine and who had managed to do what I had not. And it's actually remarkable that he was willing to say this publicly as somebody who still had a future career and to acknowledge that. But I imagine most of us could resonate with something in that to say, you know what, there are times I say things and actually what I'm saying is true, but that truth gets engulfed by a bunch of things around it that then distorts it or uses something true in a harmful way. It, it becomes destructive. We all do this all the time. And it's not that we ever should expect to be perfect, but, but one of the things that Jesus, when he, when he talks about being a disciple and he's saying, you know, don't just take the things that you like and incorporate them into your life, but open your heart and listen to me and let me speak into everything and take the whole of your life under examination so that I could transform you. What he's saying is if you're allowing certain things to remain that you don't recognize the influence that it's having, uh, you will regress even as you are following me. And so, so open your heart, open your mind, allow me and my grace to speak into the whole of your life so that you don't wind up being harmful and destructive because you can't be harmful and destructive to everyone around you without also destroying yourself. Judas is a picture of that. So what we have is an outward expression from, from Judas in verse five, his question, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Um, and it's actually a true statement. Uh, he might have really believed that. And, he, and this is one of the reasons that we need to be open and honest with ourselves, because once we allow self-deception to happen, uh, then sometimes we're not even aware that we're spinning things, that we're manipulating things. Sometimes we really have that conviction that this is right, but we're so confused about what's right um, that we don't even see it. So did Judas know that he was resenting, that he was missing out on being able to steal this? Possibly, and he said this as a cover-up. It's possible that things had gotten so bad within Judas's heart that he had a principle of Christian teaching, be sacrificial for the poor, and he, t and he, he properly applied that to the situation. 
but in such a confusing manner that it's possible he didn't simply resent Mary, but this might have been part of the seeds of resenting Jesus. Look at, look at Jesus, uh, the hypocrite, who tells us to be sacrificial, and then he's going to receive all of this. Um, often that dialogue in our heads is the outworking of a bitterness that's taken root in our own hearts. Um, the impact that Judas could have had in this scenario, because he's the first to speak. I just imagine myself being there and being confused, because as one of Jesus' disciples, I too would have found myself thinking, can you do this? Like in a variety of levels, Jesus is just allowing this to happen. Why is he letting this happen? And as I was trying to figure it out, if Judas stepped up and said, this isn't right, this should be sold so that the poor can benefit, I think I would have said, that's right. I'm with Judas on this. And actually, that wouldn't be wrong, because on the surface, his statement had truth in it. But the spirit in it also might have uh, resonated, not simply with a mind that knows that we're to care for the poor, but with a heart that's always looking to, to poke at somebody. And there might be a little bit of delight and self-righteousness to think that maybe I, too, um, am, have, have so advanced in Jesus's teachings that I beat Jesus to recognizing that uh, he's reading this wrong. And that's the danger with our pride and our arrogance. Uh, the truth in this situation is not that Judas is more moral than Jesus, especially in regards to care of the poor. Did Jesus say to care for the poor? Absolutely. So in this passage in verse 8, he frames this differently. And he says she's done uh, something that, that you don't, and here's a paraphrase of what he's getting at. You don't yet understand what she's doing, the significance, because you don't really understand what's happening. But at the end of verse 8, he says, the poor you will always have with you. And of course, it would be very mistaken as Christians to read this passage to say that Jesus is saying that caring for people with practical needs is low priority because there are other more important things. Jesus is talking about in this crucial moment, <laughs> you're trying to um, moralize and you don't understand it, uh, it would be a wrong interpretation of this verse to say uh, care of the poor is, is a secondary outworking when we get to it. Um, Jesus didn't make up this statement. He was actually alluding to Deuteronomy 15, where Moses says, when you enter the land, if you are faithful, you will not have the poor here. Why? Because God is bringing you into a land that has enough to sustain this people. He says, but if you are not faithful to keep the law, um, you will have poverty. And then Moses says, and the poor will always be with you. Why? Because there's not enough in the land flowing with milk and honey? No, because any time corruption is at work, some people wind up more quickly um, suffering from it. And so when Moses says, the poor you will always have with you, he's saying any time that there's poverty, it's not a sign that there's not enough in the world. It's a sign that something's wrong in the world. When Jesus says, the poor will always be with you, He's not saying, therefore, don't do the work. He's saying, don't you see that here you are saying you care for, quote, the poor, but you love money and not people. The poor are not a group of people you're trying to categorize. They're a group of people you're using for your own selfish agenda here. And so if you think you're more moral than Jesus, there might be something underneath that exposes that you are not. And so when Jesus says the poor you will always have with you, Judas is talking about what he can do for the poor. And there's an irony in the very situation that the poor are with Jesus, that they're drawn to him, they're helped. So this is in the home of, uh, in a home in Bethany. There's always debates about how to translate an old 
uh, Hebrew word, but the going theory uh, that most scholars seem to, to believe is that Bethany means house of the poor or house of affliction. So there's an irony that they're sitting in the house of the poor and Judas is saying, but we really should be caring for the poor. And, and, and so you, you read the different um, gospel accounts and, and, and as you try to locate, well, where was this? It wasn't in the home of Lazarus or Mary. Um, it seems that it was in the home of Simon, the leper. That's interesting because if he still had leprosy, they would not be eating in his home. He would be outside of the city of Bethany in isolation. Jesus must have done something to heal him. So now the poor uh, is with him. <laughs> so here's Jesus whose ministry is communicating that he's the one who gathers and heals and cares and has compassion. And in a self-righteous expression, the finger is pointed to Jesus. You're allowing this to happen. Aren't we those who care about the poor? And if you're watching, yes, we are. Um, but Judas, that's not why you're asking this question. And so for us, <clears throat> there's always something going on below the surface. Uh, no matter how far you've come in your moral teaching, no matter how far you've progressed as a Christian, we always have these corrupt desires that if we hide them, if we excuse them, if we bury them, if we serve them, we'll be shaping how we see things so that ultimately things are so distorted that, that not only are we interpreting things wrong, but our function in the world um, is completely confused and, and therefore we're gonna be leading people to interpret things wrong, we're gonna be confused, we're gonna continue perpetuating the harms that Jesus says, I'm calling to people uh, to be different in the world. And so um, I don't know what was going on in Judas's mind, but if he felt that he loved money and he was committed to doing anything that would get it for him, well then he was explicitly self-destructive. The problem for many of us is that we have these desires that we know and discern are wrong, and we don't want them to be there. We don't want them to influence us, but they're still there, they still speak. So that's why I'm gonna talk about now the second thing, new influences. Because on the one hand, there, there are these influences that, that we're, we're invited, come and join with Jesus and, and put aside those old ways. And yet, I think the experience of anyone here who's been a Christian for any period of time is, I still want things that I know are wrong. And, and, and it's not simply that I want them, but I want them to such degree that, that I feel like I need to have it. So I'm gonna just bury it, hide it, and then excuse it. Um, it's not simply that we need to be restraining the old desires, but we need to be replacing them with new desires. And that's where the thing that Judas didn't seem to be able to connect with was that actually, um, if he would have been patient, if he would have waited, if he would have stayed with Jesus rather than betraying him, he would have understood a measure of grace that he had not at that problem. And so um, in verses one and two, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So. I'm reading those verses because we want to understand the context of this passage. And one part of the context is something strange happens. Mary comes with this expensive ointment, wets down her hair, washes feet. That is strange. But the stranger context is that Lazarus, who's a guest at the table, was dead for four days. So before anyone has done anything, this is a very unusual gathering. So then it's not surprising that some of the actions in this gathering are a bit 
unusual. Can you imagine being there when Mary comes and pours this ointment? If you just come into John 11, uh, John 12 without having read this, you'd think, wow, what a strange thing to do. But I think my thought would have been, um, Mary, don't distract us. Uh, so, so Lazarus, go on. So there you are. You're in the dark. You hear the, you're telling me you heard the voice of Jesus. In, you know, I have questions about what four days in the grave was like, how he came out of it. Um, what a strange thing. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, is one of those reclining with him. At that point, I'm open to a number of strange things happening at this meal. So I actually don't know why Mary did what she did, but I imagine if I was there, here's one thing that, and again, this is not insight into Mary, this is just my imaginings as I try to think about this scenario. Some of you know that I am quite careful with money. And I can imagine myself as the sister of Lazarus. My brother dies, and here I have this expensive ointment and thinking, I should probably anoint my brother before we bury him. But then doing the math and thinking, you know, he's gonna be in the tomb. All of this value is just gonna go in his body and he's gonna go into the tomb. And, and it seems futile. Why, why would we bother doing that? That feels wasteful. So I am actually gonna save it for another occasion. I don't know how Mary thought, but when I go back and read John 11, and Jesus comes to the tomb and there's this large stone and Jesus says, roll the stone away. And then Martha says, don't, because by now, after four days, there will be this terrible stink. Mary, I would find myself interpreting Martha's words as, you know, I didn't know, we knew that Jesus could heal the sick. Nobody told me he could raise the dead. If I knew that the stone was gonna be open, of course I would have anointed him with this expensive oil. I just thought we were gonna seal him up and that was the end of it. I don't think that what was happening with Mary, but I'm going through that exercise to say, after something like thinking you lost your brother and having him return to you, there's no doubt that your value, uh, your valuations have changed. At that point, who? cares about this expensive oil. I thought my young brother died and I received him back from the dead. At this point, let's save it, let's pass it, let's use it. Why are we holding on to these things when something so wonderful has happened? And so I can't help but imagine part of what we're seeing that, Mar that Jesus appreciates is that Mary was expressing gratitude. Have you ever had one of those friends that, that you can't do anything for? I had this friend who was fairly prosperous and so occasionally he would do something lavish for me. And then when occasions came up like his birthday, I always found myself thinking there's you know, nothing I can do because most of the things we do to, to help somebody else carries a financial, I'll buy you a gift, I'll take you out for dinner and all things that he would have probably felt guilty taking from me. So I found myself, how do you help this person? Um, you could see Mary thinking, what do we do for Jesus? Jesus came and, and brought our brother back. <laughs> He doesn't want our possessions. He doesn't want our flattery. There's, there's no favor. What on earth can we do? You could see her just coming in and saying, I just somehow need to show that I'm thankful that what he did uh, was so wonderful that I just want to honor him. And maybe it was a bit strange. And maybe if she had a month to think about it, she would have come up with something different. But Jesus seems to be recognizing that Judas, who seems to be upright and moral, his bitterness is coming out, even as he's saying something true. And Mary, 
who is overflowing with love is coming and doing something strange, but Jesus is not going to shame somebody who's strange and overflowing with love. And so in verse 7, Jesus says, leave her alone. So he's the advocate. Judas frames things to say, uh, look at who the problem in this room is. And Jesus stands with her, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And here's the thing that Jesus has been talking about and nobody is catching on to, even his own disciples. Jesus knows that he is about to be betrayed. And we know that in in the passage where he raised Lazarus, when he said, I'm going to go to Bethany right near Jerusalem to raise Lazarus, his disciples understood at this point, uh, there's people are trying to find you. Um, If we go, we can expect that you'll be arrested. And one of the things there is Jesus goes knowing that in raising Lazarus, he would be crucified. And it becomes this picture of Jesus who is the one who lays down his life for others. And so he's willing to come to to call Lazarus out of the tomb, knowing that that will create the very context for his own going to the grave. And in this ugly scenario of his own disciple betraying him, of of nobody understanding of this broken world, uh, here's somebody who's grateful and devoted. And Jesus connects this to to be preparing for how God the Father is working in all things to prepare him for this next moment. And so what I want to talk about as we apply this for our own lives in three categories, there are these three theological virtues that sometimes we talk about in the church, faith, hope, and love. And so for the question, how do you continue to grow in a process of change? Faith, hope, and love are categories that will help you rather than theft, bitterness, suspicion, um, cynicism, those sorts of things. And so all of us live in real time where, where we're aware that our hearts are not right and that we still make mistakes, but how do we make sure that we're not growing uh, in, in, in a destructive way, but we're growing out of a destructive way. So first, faith. When Jesus says, come and believe in me, he's talking about opening your life and your mind to learn from him, which means that, that currently we are misunderstanding him and everything because of these problematic things that are happening under the radar that are shaping how we see. And so in the scenario, Judas sees a sinful woman where Jesus sees somebody who comes and loves him. Uh, We so frequently wrongly assess situations because we're allowing our own uh, skewed, angry um, uh, thoughts to shape how we interpret everything. And therefore, like Judas, we're, we're at danger of not connecting with those who are actually loving us. When Jesus says, believe in me, one of the things he's inviting us to is to listen to his message of grace. He who comes, who has loved us, who lays down his life for us, and will will reframe our identity and our view of the world in light of that. In a world of good and evil, it's not that we're fully evil and he's going to call us to fully good, but we we live trapped thinking out of an evil paradigm. And Jesus is coming and saying, now I'm going to reframe. So even though this world is still problematic and corrupt and you still need to be wise and discerning about everyone, including yourself, but you'll now see things rightly. Uh, And I'm highlighting faith here because Jesus calls us to believe him. And one of the challenges we have is because we often think that there are these issues with him that are dissatisfying to us. Uh, and they're dissatisfying because when Jesus in his perfection comes into, his, into our lives, something of our negative response is exposing not a problem with him, but a problem in us. What is it that troubles us 
when Jesus, who's gracious and kind and calls us to follow him, uh, provokes us, that often will indicate there's something we're holding on to, something that we're not being open to. Uh, and therefore, what Jesus is trying to do is, is to replace the self-destructive beliefs. So, for example, you may believe <clears throat> that, that you are who you are and that your future is hopeless. Uh, and it doesn't feel like a belief. It feels like a fact because of the data that you have. Every time I try anything, I fail. And then because of that, as you're observing the world, a hundred things could happen, but you'll note the one that is a further evidence in the narrative that you're committed to, which is, oh, but I should have done something different, or that's typical of me. And so we have this very deterministic view of this is who I am. The future will, uh, will be this way uh, without hope. And, and, and the, uh, the evidence is I keep acting by doing the foolish things that I don't want to do. And so we're stuck. You have to realize those are beliefs. Those are beliefs that have been formed um, where Jesus is saying, but, but your future is not determined. Your future is open. You can change. There is the possibility of grace and don't expect to be perfect right away. But why can you not be a person who makes some mistakes but still believe that there's growth and progress? Um, we think that they're facts, but I'm hopeless. But my being hopeless is a belief. And Jesus comes to challenge that and says, don't believe that you're hopeless, but believe even if you have been, that there's grace so that you can be hopeful. When Jesus says, believe me, we have such trouble believing what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm with you. I will forgive you. I will teach you. I will carry you along. I will sustain you. But what we find compelling evidence in the world is it's not going to work. So Jesus is saying is you need to replace the old beliefs with new beliefs. It's not an escapist fantasy to think that everything will be perfect. It's an engagement with actual reality. Life will still be challenging. You have things to work on. You're not perfect. You're still going to struggle. But if you trust me, then the center of gravity changes from our own hearts, where the most convincing truth is, I know myself and my imperfections. The center of gravity changes to the heart of Jesus, where we're not looking inside ourselves to find out what's most fundamentally true, but we're looking into Christ. But if we've joined with Jesus through faith, then what we're seeing in him is nourishing us and making it so that our future could be different from the past. Jesus says, trust me. Look at me if you want to see what's good and right. And as you're aligned with me, believe that I will be at work in you. So have faith, have hope. And, and part of this hopefulness is to uh, actually believe that, that despite the old habits, despite the old patterns, despite the fact that it's still hard, that progress, though, though we have to be patient with it, can happen. You know, as I was reading this story and imagining uh, various things, we have to be careful not to imagine too much. I'm, I'm not trying to have my imaginings be the interpretation of the passage, but, but more for the application of it. So here's Judas saying she shouldn't have done this. She should have sold that ointment and, and given it to the poor. And I find myself saying, actually, there's something true in that, even though he said it in order to, to justify himself and to harm somebody else. I found myself wondering if... If years later, Mary in the heavenly realms bumps into Jesus, if she would have said to him, hey, Jesus, by the way, remember when I poured that ointment on your feet? Um, should I have done that or should I have sold the ointment and given to the poor? I think it's possible Jesus would have said, yeah, I think maybe you probably should have sold it and given it to the poor. Maybe. Maybe that would have been the right ethical application in the abstract 
But what he was recognizing was, but at that moment, what you didn't know um, was an expression of, of love and generosity. And therefore, maybe in the should have, um, yeah, perhaps that wasn't the thing to do, but in the reality, I see what you did, <laughs> and I'm thankful for it. And, and, and that's, the, that's what becomes hopeful, which is, it's not simply that when you become a Christian, you learn all the perfect things and you do them. We still have so much to learn. There's so much we still get wrong. And having loving intentions doesn't mean that we don't still do problematic things. But having loving intentions and a heart open to Christ means we could then learn from the problematic things and change them. And that's the hope. The hope is that actually, uh, when we have love for Christ, it changes the outcomes. And so that's the last thing, faith, hope, love. What she did was an expression of gratitude. She did it, so John tells us in 11, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They loved him. Uh, now she receives her brother back from the dead, and she shows up overwhelmed with joy, um, and she just wants to express it. And so out of that love, God takes it and says, you know, she has done something here uh, in preparing for my burial. She didn't understand even the significance of what she was doing, but here's the nature of the world. There's always things below the surface. You don't know what horrible things you or others are planning, but you also don't know what good things God is planning. And when you act consistently in love, God will take even your mixed motives or your poor decisions and somehow use them redemptively. So that at the end of the day, when others will accuse you of your wrongdoing, Jesus will say, leave her alone. Um, so what's interesting is verse, verse three. So in the midst of this scenario, where the bitterness of, of uh, Judas is coming out verbally. Verse three says, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And it's an interesting thing to think about as you're visualizing this scene. Uh, from a sensory perspective, you know, the Bible talks about these sacrifices that are a pleasing aroma to God. And you can imagine if you dwelt in the temple and they would throw uh, you know, a, a slaughtered calf on, on the fire, uh, that the roasting meat would have a pleasing aroma. And here's Jesus going to the cross where everything around it is ugly. He's been falsely accused. He's being ridiculed. He's suffering miserably. And one odd thing, and I don't know that this is true, but as he went to the cross, he, he might have smelled good. Um, he might have offered himself as the true sacrifice, a pleasing aroma in the sight of God, even though everything you would see there in truth would be horrific. You can't justify this in the slightest. And yet Christians are told to re-see what God does, that he uses something awful like that to do something beautiful. So Jesus, who gives himself and submits to burial, does so with a pleasing aroma. And so we're told when you receive grace, when you know the love of God, you're not instantly perfected. But when you go out devoted, seeking to be thankful, you'll still make mistakes. It won't be first nature. But there's a pleasing aroma about the people who love and appreciate God, those who are grateful and thankful. So as you think about your own process of change, on the one hand, um, don't cover up don't make excuses, and, and we need to be wise about this. This doesn't mean we're always talking to everyone at all times about what's going on in our hearts, but make sure that we're not allowing things that we recognize as problematic to remain having influence. But as you're discouraged, 
with those desires that remain that you hate. Um, be patient that while they exist, you know, but that's not who I have to be. Just because that's what I feel or that's what I used to do doesn't mean I have to give into it. And even if I give in, that doesn't mean I have to accept that as my fate. But that faith and that hope that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying to replace what I've learned in the world with what I'm learning from Christ. And so I will keep trying to, to nourish that gratitude, understand the love of Christ, and seek to express that. And if at a time I'm feeling something angry, but I'm not appreciating the love of Christ, I'm going to act out of the love of Christ because I believe that's more fundamentally true. And so part of our task is to, to cultivate this new reality. Do you believe the message of Jesus, which is that in love, he gave himself so that you can be forgiven, you could be cleansed, your future could be changed. If you believe that, your current imperfections are part of what's being healed and put away. And even though it kills you that they're still there, you don't have to resist them. You don't have to live that way. Uh, just don't listen to them. Listen to Jesus who says in any situation, uh, here's a better way and do now to them as I've done for you. And the voice of the accuser that's leaving you feeling harassed, have confidence that one day as we stand before God, even if there's a lot of truth uh, to the enemy of God pointing at us and saying, but don't you know all the terrible things they thought and did, that Jesus will say, leave them alone. What they did in me was beautiful. And therefore, that's the hope of Christianity, that change is real, but it comes uh, through receiving his grace and living in it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, even as we assemble today, we come here bringing our own troubled thoughts, our own regrets, our own foolishness, and some of us feel stuck or discouraged or our hearts are hardened that we feel like we're not connecting with you. Lord, forgive us. Lord, uh, you who saw Judas do this, in chapter 13, kneel down and wash the feet of the disciples. Uh, even Judas, who you knew was going to betray you, uh, you washed his feet. And so, Lord, let none of us think that we are so terrible that we're removed from your grace. But by your spirit, open our hearts to receive it so that we would connect with you and that that connection would bring a real transformation, that we would become more like you gaining your heart and mind. So do that spiritual work in our hearts and minds and through us as a church, help us to be a pleasing aroma in this city. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.